Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues them, they must not, they, they must not surrender the one accused because they killed their, his neighbour unintentionally and without malice or forethought. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the high country of Naphtali, Sechem in the high country of Ephraim, and Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. On the east side of the Jordan of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the desert of the Plateau, in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Galilee, in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in the Bashan, in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any alien living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eliezer the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh in Canaan and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands pasture lands for all our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. Anyway, let's um, pray, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us your word. And we pray for our young people now as, as the word is implanted into their minds and hearts that uh, it would grow and bear much fruit. We pray the same for ourselves. Help us to be free of distractions, help us to focus on your word, help us to get to know you better and uh, rejoice in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I've only been to Lightning Ridge once in my life. If you don't know where Lightning Ridge is, <clears throat> just drive to Grafton and turn left and keep going for about 730 kilometres and you'll get there. Uh, on the 400-kilometre journey uh, westward from our town, uh, our home in Inverell, uh, Cassie, after a few hours, started to get rather bored by my commentary about all of the dead roos on the side of the road. Uh, she was kind of slightly interested uh, when I told her that there was emus running alongside us, but we both really knew that we were out west when Cassie said to me, Scott, there's a camel crossing the road ahead of us. <laughs> Which there was. He came out of the bush, crossed the highway, went back into the bush on the other side. Uh, the 2,000 or so people who live in the... Hello, Margaret Chant. <laughs> Margaret's back from Brisbane. Lovely to see you. Um, the 2,000 or so people uh, living in Lightning Ridge, they're there mostly for one reason, and that is because of the largest deposit in the world of black opals. Now, dotted around the, the land surrounding uh, the township of Lightning Ridge, 
uh, men have staked out their plot of earth. <laughs> they've got some kind of a lease on it, but they've staked out their little plot of the land and they've done so in the hope of, that they might strike it rich. We got friends who minister, we had friends who were ministering uh, the gospel in that region uh, between Lightning Ridge and Colorenebri. And they told us that the ridge attracts an interesting collection of people. Let's just say it has a higher than average number of colourful personalities. Uh, men who are, there's a lot of men who are running away from something. <laughs> uh, running away from a, a relationship, running away from the in-laws, running away from, from the law itself. And they have found their refuge at the ridge and their plot of ground, neither of which are actually very secure. But anyway, that's another story. Interesting place to visit, just don't ask too many questions, all right? <laughs> now, throughout history, there have been all sorts of places where people, special places where people on the run have been able to find refuge. Uh, not just because they're out in the middle of, you know, emu and, car and camel country, but um, Legal places, uh, legal places where people can find refuge. Uh, modern equivalents might be, I'm thinking Julian Assange holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Interesting to see how long it takes before him to walk out. They say, the psych psychologists say that, uh, and people, have, criminologists and so on have said that uh, in that situation, uh, after a while, people walk out anyway, um, even knowing that they'll go to jail. Um, because they just need to do something different. They need to get out. Um, church buildings have sometimes been uh, respected as being places of uh, refuge. I heard of some uh, churches in America that were <coughs> planning to open their doors to people who the present administration were going to ask to leave. Uh, in the world in which Joshua lived, uh, places of refuge were actually quite common. Amongst the other nations, uh, the uh, pagan nations uh, around, uh, usually they were places of worship, uh, like shrines, like temples and so on, where people were given refuge, whether they were guilty or not. <laughs> now, for Israel, uh, places of refuge would, were not going to just be like those of the nations around them. Uh, last week in the book of Joshua, we saw that uh, after Israel had conquered Canaan, that the, the whole land was carved up uh, with uh, each tribe, each tribe except the tribe of Levi, the Levites, each tribe being allotted an inheritance, a, a portion of the land. So as they develop their society, the question then is, well, what's God's attitude towards places of refuge? And what does that tell us about his character and his uh, purpose for his people? Joshua chapter 20 is all about cities of refuge. Now, when I think of, of cities, I think of pretty big places, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. I don't like it when people refer to Port Macquarie as a city. I like to think we're still a town, don't you? You know, we've only got half a dozen traffic lights. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, but in Israel, a city, you know, think... Some, you know, it can be any size, and, and, and many of them were, were just villages, maybe just a handful of houses. 
But what identified them as cities is they were surrounded by a, a wall with a gate, a, a wall for protection. In verse 1, if you care to open up your Bibles at Joshua chapter 20, God instructed uh, Joshua to designate certain cities to be cities, cities of refuge. But these were not to be places of refuge for, for anybody. Uh, there were certain conditions that would need to be met. Now, let's think of for a moment about um, Israel's law. Under the law of Moses, if a person deliberately shed the blood of an innocent person, the penalty for that was death. Um, now, they didn't have a police force. And so it was the responsibility of the nearest um, male blood relative to ensure uh, that the person who had committed the murder paid for the crime with their blood. Verse 3, that relative's called the avenger of blood. That's colourful terminology, isn't it? <coughs> Think of a, I don't know, a video game called the avenger of blood or something like that. Anyway, uh, in other parts of the Bible, uh, the same person is also referred to as the kinsman redeemer. We're a bit more familiar with that, aren't we? Um, particularly if we've read the book of Ruth and uh, the book of... Um, and learnt about Boaz. We've just lost some lights up the front here. Would someone go and flick these front um, lights, these ones here on? That'll just make things a little bit easier. Now, one of the issues here is that when someone was killed, the, the actual land was considered to be, by God, to be defiled. And that uh, the death must be paid for no matter how, how it happened. And so uh, even when someone was killed and they did not know who was responsible for uh, the death, you know, they've just found a body somewhere and no one has the foggiest idea who's killed the person, um, what they'd have to do is they'd have to uh, measure the distance between where the body was found and the nearest, work out what the nearest town was and the people of that nearest town uh, would have to offer up a, a, a heifer as a blood sacrifice to atone for the death uh, that had taken place uh, because human life is valuable. It makes an important point about the value of human life and the land was considered to be cleansed when that would happen. But when they knew who did it, and when they knew who did it because they had two or more witnesses uh, to a murder, then the relative, the avenger, could go after the murderer and had the responsibility of executing justice. But what if it was an accident? What if it was manslaughter? Uh, there's a couple of other passages early on from Joshua in um, when Moses was leading Israel, uh, which actually outlined some of the issues here. Numbers chapter 35, uh, for example, gives actual case possibilities to define the difference between murder and manslaughter. And so Numbers 35 says, well, you know what, if someone 
deliberately puts a big rock in their hand and goes and smashes it over someone's head and the person dies, guess what? That's murder and that person must pay for it with their life. They do the same thing with a block of wood. It says if they if they go and push someone deliberately with the intent to uh, kill them and the person goes over a cliff or hits their head on a rock, that's murder and they need to pay for that with their lives. Um, or if they throw something at them with the intention of uh, doing them harm and the person dies, guess what? That's murder. That person, the avenger of the blood, when they catch up with them, they had to put that person to death. But if it was an accident, and as a kind of illustration that's given, two guys are out in the forest and they're chopping wood and one guy... He swings the axe and the axe head comes off and goes and hits the other guy on the head and the guy dies. Well, um, the avenger of blood uh, might want to avenge that, but the person who's done the killing, they can flee. They can flee from that relative and they can flee to a city of refuge. Now, verses 7 through to 9, if you care to look at those in, in verse chapter 20, uh, I, Hallie read those really well, and you're probably glad that you weren't asked to do the reading today with all of those names of tribes and towns and so on. This is not just boring geographical data about these cities of refuge. Uh, what is important here is the, the location uh, that's given. If we had a map, what we would see is that there are six cities that are, that are listed here and uh, there are three cities. Um, if that's the Jordan River, um, there, are, there, are th there are three cities on either side of the Jordan River. There are two in the north, there's two in the centre and there's two in the south. Now, what does that mean? What, why is that helpful? Well, it means that they're accessible, aren't they? Um, you know, it's not like trying to get out to Lightning Ridge. Uh, so long as you can run faster than the Avenger of Blood, you've got a chance of getting there. You don't have too far to go. But once the fugitive got to the city gate, remember there's walls around these cities, they've got a gate. Once they got to the city gate, they couldn't just walk in and uh, set up house. Have a look at verse 4. In verse 4, it says, When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into the city and give him a place to live with them. That is, unlike the places of refuge in the other nations, you couldn't just get in for any reason that you wanted to. No, the fugitive would have to convince the elders of the city that there's, a, uh, there's at least some grounds for thinking that this might have been an accident. <laughs> I mean, I take it that um, if you turned up and said, hey, I've just gone and murdered someone and now the avenger of blood's after me and he's going to kill me and I'm really sorry, but can you let me in? You know, they'd say, sorry, no, you don't meet the criteria. 
So there had to be a prima facie case uh, that this was manslaughter and not murder. And if there was that case, then they would be provided refuge. But in verse 6, it's not indefinite. Uh, it was only until their case went to court. And that means that these cities of refuge uh, could not be used uh, for someone to escape justice uh, and live there without trial. No, they went to trial. However, if at their trial the death was judged to be accidental, the person still had to pay a price. And I, I take it this is because human life is valuable. We see this in verse 6. Verse 6, <clears throat> he is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So what you notice there is that even if he's uh, found guilty only of manslaughter and not murder, uh, that he that he couldn't leave the city of refuge and go and resume life as normal. He couldn't do that until after the death of the high priest. Now, why is that the case? Why is that so? A couple of thoughts on this. Maybe the, the death of the high priest just sort of sets a maximum limit on the time that he has to stay in the city of refuge. But you'd have to think that could be a bit unfair. I mean, the high priest could die soon or he could die in a long time. No consistency there. But that's a possibility. The other thought, and I guess this is where I sort of uh, lean, is that the, the death of the high priest, uh, even by natural causes, by old age, means that the, uh, the death that has occurred of the innocent person has been atoned for. There has been a, a life for a life uh, in that sense. Uh, so like the animal, the, the heifer, which dies when the killer is not known, uh, the, the death of the high priest means that the death of the other person has been atoned for. Notice something else in verse 9. Any of the Israelites or any alien living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. See, it's not just Israelites who could find refuge, is it? It's the, the alien that's living in the land. It's the, it's the Gentile person, the pagan person who's passing through or who, who's living in, in Israel. And this is a nice hint for us as well, isn't it? Because this actually is evidence that God actually provides refuge uh, and mercy, not just for, uh, not just for Israelites, but for, but for Gentiles as well, uh, people like you and me. And we see this uh, threaded throughout the scriptures, and ultimately uh, we see it fulfilled as the gospel goes into... Um, into all of the world and God's mercy and God's refuge is found by all kinds of people. 
like you and me. But for the Israelite who's on the run, these cities of refuge meant that they didn't have to escape to another country. They didn't have to um, melt into some other society and uh, be lost in some other society. No, they actually got to stay in the promised land, in this city of refuge, and they actually had uh, got to experience justice uh, in God's promised land, the land of their inheritance. And yet, not all Israel, not all of Israelites were given an inheritance, were they? As we said a few moments ago, one of the tribes of Israel was Levi. And the Levites were the one tribe which was set apart by God for a special purpose. Uh, some of the Levites, uh, namely those who were descended from, from Aaron, uh, some of the Levites were to be priests. They were to be the mediators between God and man who would offer up sacrifices to God on our behalf. Uh, the, others, the other Levites were to serve God in a variety of other ways. Um, by serving at the, uh, caring for the tabernacle. Um, the Levites as a tribe uh, were a substitute for the firstborn uh, son of every Israelite family because uh, in recognition of what God had done in sparing the firstborns in the 10th plague in Egypt, every Israelite, was to offer up their firstborn son uh, to the service of God. And the whole tribe of Levi acted as a substitute for the firstborn of every family. So they were substitutes in that sense. And very importantly, very importantly, it was their role to be the ones who brought uh, the word of God uh, to all of Israel. They were to teach the, the, teach the law so that all of the people could get to know God. And in turn, the people would provide for the Levites. And this is the idea of the tithe because uh, one-tenth of uh, uh, their income would be uh, gifted to the, to the Levites and uh, the unburnt portions of sacrifices would go to the Levites as well um, for their living. So here's a question. Why do you think they were not given an inheritance of a large sector of land? Well, on the one hand, if they were to minister God's word to God's people and to do so effectively, then they actually had to be spread out, didn't they? They had to be spread across the whole land, not sort of all living down in the southwest or up in the northeast. They had to be spread out across the whole land. And that's why, in a sense, um, chapter, the rest of chapter 21, if you kind of look down at, you know, skim down it, it actually makes for pretty dry reading, to be honest. Um, Hallie's pretty glad we didn't get her to read the whole of chapter 21 because it's a, it's a long list of... Um, of tribes and geographic locations and towns and so on, um, which were which were give, 
towns which were given to the Levites to live in. They didn't have a land, but they were given towns to live in. Uh, they had a small amount of land around each town so as they could keep um, some livestock. But the Levites were like tenants. They were living in towns on land which belonged to the other tribes. There is a bit of a summary in verse 41. Just check that out for a moment. Verse 41. Uh, the towns of the Levites in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. Each of these towns had pasture lands surrounding it. This was true for all the towns. Uh, there you go, 48 towns and they're scattered throughout the whole of the land, scattered throughout the whole of Israel. Why? It's got to do with accessibility. So that all of God's people had access to, to God. Um, that they, all of God's people could hear God's word being taught. All of God's people, no matter where they were, could worship God um, through the sacrifices and so on. But there is another reason. You see, ministry is not just about performing rituals and it's not just about even speaking God's word. Uh, it must always involve modelling eternal truths. Uh, the Levites uh, were a bit like the person who was just kind of travelling through. The alien, the stranger, the sojourner. They had no inheritance. They had no portion of the land. Except for this. Have a look at, uh, listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 18. I've actually printed that for you on your sheets there on the inside. Uh, make it easier. Deuteronomy 18 verses 1 to 2. The priests who are Levites, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the offerings made to the Lord by fire, so that uh, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. And get this, the Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. See, they actually did have an inheritance, didn't they? The Lord, God himself. But in this life, they did not own any land. They did not sink any roots. So that over time, the Levites became like a, a visual aid for all of God's people. That though the tribes each had their land, that the land itself is transitory. The land itself points to something which is much Better, much bigger, much higher. Before I became a Christian, I occasionally would wonder about some of the big questions of life. I didn't sit around philosophizing all the time, but I asked myself some questions and pondered some thoughts. Questions like, what is the purpose of life? Um, how did all of this come into existence? Why is there so much evidence of design in nature 
What happens after I die? Is this all there is? Am I of any greater worth than the insect or the bird or other creatures? Over time, the Levites, having no land, helped godly Israelites to see that there is a certain rootlessness in the life of every person. And that ought to make us restless. That ought to make us ponder and ask some big questions. In this world, we all um, suffer from the effects of sin. Um, both the, the, the sin of others upon ourselves and upon the world in general and our own sin, our own um, desire to live our lives for ourselves and not to live for God. And we suffer the consequences of that. Sometimes our world can feel like it's falling around, down, around us. What security can we have? Where can we find refuge? The, the psalmists in various psalms were able to, to look beyond the cities of refuge. They're able to look beyond the uh, allotment of land to the great realities, the great reality. We see this, for example, in Psalm 142. I've printed that on your front of your sheets because I think it's a good one to get into our heads and here the uh, the psalmist describes his circumstances of life where he says when my spirit grows faint within me it is you who knows my way in the path where I walk men have hidden a snare for me look to my right and see no one is concerned for me I have no refuge no one cares for my life I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Great couple of verses, aren't they? And, and the psalmist throughout the psalms describe God, they describe God variously as being my rock, my hope, my deliverer, my joy, my refuge, my inheritance, my everything, my all in all. That though I might lose all that I have, that though I may be overburdened by the guilt of my sin, that God is my everything, that God is my refuge, God is my portion of the land. Now, you and I know this, we know this very clearly, don't we? Especially, well, in Jesus. Uh, because it, there's a sense in which we are all like fugitives who've become Levites. <laughs> you know, it's great looking at 1 Peter recently. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 is a pretty good verse. And it says some things which are said in other passages that are listed for you, like in Hebrews 9 and Colossians 1 and so on. But have a look at Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, where Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You've received mercy. Like the fugitive, we have received mercy. As Christ has paid for and has atoned for our sin, we found refuge, haven't we? We found refuge in him. He is the rock of ages that's cleft for me, my hiding place. But we found refuge not until we go to trial. Well, because when we get to the trial, the judge will say the price has been paid forever. And like Levitical priests, God has taken us out of the darkness, which says that this world is all that there is, that this plot of land, that this physical existence, this is it, there's nothing more. Might as well eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. He's taken us out of the darkness of that and he has given us our inheritance. He has brought us into the eternal kingdom which is light. And you know he's got a purpose for us too, doesn't he? Because we're a kingdom of priests. So just like the Levites, we, we kind of spread out, don't we? In our town, in our nation, in our world, we represent God to people. And we tell people about the sacrifice that's already been paid. We declare his praises so that others might know the refuge that they can find in Jesus and the inheritance which will never perish, spoil or fade. Let me finish with a couple of fun facts about Lightning Ridge. Number one, <clears throat> it is such, it is so Aussie that even Paul Hogan was born there. Number two, you know how it got its name? Well, in the 1870s, there was some guy that was just sort of passing through the district when he came across one dead farmer, one dead dog, and 200 dead sheep <laughs> who had all been struck by I've got to tell you, it's not exactly what I call a great place for refuge. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the refuge that we have in Christ and the inheritance we've received because of his atoning work and his resurrection. Father, we thank you that you've called us into your kingdom We've got that inheritance and you've made us to be like priests. We can be ambassadors for you, representing you to people, spreading out and telling others about the refuge that we can all find in Christ Jesus. Help us to set our sights on our heavenly inheritance and help us to tell others about Jesus as you give us every breath of life to do so. And We pray this in his name. Amen.